Welcome to TanakhStudy.com. This is Ni'ima Novetsky, and today we'll resume our study of Aikra Perek Chapter 18. We'll explore the second half of the laws of prohibited sexual relations and delve into various understandings of these laws and reasons for the prohibitions. In our last year, we looked at a first category of prohibited sexual acts, those which stemmed from the closeness of the relationship. Women who are off limits to a man because they are related to him through either blood or marriage, or in the words of the verse, because they are she'irau, of his flesh. These included a mother or stepmother, half-sisters and perhaps full-sisters, granddaughters, aunts through blood or marriage, and one's daughter-in-law and sister-in-law, specifically the wife of one's brother. Today, we'll continue with the rest of the prohibitions, starting where we left off in verse 17. Ervat isha uvita lotigale, et bat bina ve et bat bita lotikach legalot ervata, sha'arahina, zimahi. You shall not uncover the nakedness of a woman and her daughter. You shall not take her son's daughter or her daughter's daughter to uncover her nakedness. They are near kinswomen. This verse precludes a man from marrying or having relations with both a mother and her daughter which effectively precludes a man from having relations with either his spouse's daughter or his spouse's mother, as both scenarios constitute Isha Ubita, a woman and her daughter. In addition, it tells us that Bat Bita or Bat Bina are also off limits, prohibiting a man from having relations with both a woman and her granddaughter. These three cases are prohibited not because of the woman's relationship to the man, but because of the various women's relationships to each other, since they are each other's flesh. The verse ends by telling us, Zimahi, such a deed is an act of wickedness. Verse 18 then prohibits a man from marrying two sisters. You shall not take a wife to her sister to be a rival, to uncover her nakedness while her sister is yet alive. This prohibition, too, stems from the relationship of the women to each other and not their relationship to the man. The verse even explicitly states the problem. When marrying two sisters, they will become rivals. As opposed to the first prohibition of marrying both a mother and her daughter or granddaughter, which is in effect even after the death of one of the women, this prohibition is in effect only while the sister is still alive. After death, there's no longer an issue of potential rivalry. And so there's no longer a problem with the man marrying his deceased wife's sister. Verses 19 and 20 are fairly straightforward. Verse 19 speaks of a woman in an impure state. One is not allowed to have relations with a woman who has the status of a nida, who is impure due to menstruation. Verse 20 then prohibits adulterous relationships. You shall not lie carnally with your neighbor's wife and defile yourself with her. Shadal Shmuel David Lutato points out that the women listed in these last three prohibitions, marrying two sisters, sleeping with a menstruating woman, or sleeping with one who is married, these women are all off limits only temporarily. As we mentioned earlier, if a man's wife dies, her sister is then permitted to him. When a woman is purified from her nida state, she is no longer prohibited. And if a married woman is divorced or widowed, she too becomes available. 
The temporary status of these prohibitions might explain the juxtaposition of the three cases and their placement at the end of the list of prohibited male-female unions. For as we'll see, the rest of the sexual acts listed in the continuation are of a different nature. In fact, the very next verse, verse 21, appears not to belong in our chapter altogether, as it doesn't even explicitly speak of sexual relations at all. The Pasuk reads, You shall not give any of your children, or more literally, your seed, to pass to the Molech, neither shall you profane the name of your God, I am Hashem. The Molech is generally understood to be a form of idolatry, and so many assume that this verse is prohibiting either immolating or consecrating one's children in service to the Molech. If so, though, we wonder, why is the prohibition appearing here, right in the middle of a list of sexual offenses? We'll discuss this law of the Molech more at length when we get to chapter 20, since that chapter devotes several verses to the prohibition. But already now it should be noted that there's a minority opinion which suggests that the verse refers to having relations with a non-Jew and giving not one's children, but one's seed or semen to this non-Jew. If so, the context of sexual offenses is understandable. The last two prohibitions in the chapter, in verses 22 and 23, deal with sexual acts which are unnatural, in the sense that they cannot result in procreation. Verse 22 prohibits homosexuality. You shall not lie with a man as with a woman, that is detestable. And finally, verse 23 closes the unit by speaking of bestiality. You shall not lie with any animal to defile yourself with it, neither shall any woman give herself to an animal to lie down with it. It is a perversion. To summarize the various prohibitions that emerge from this section of the chapter, the verse prohibits having relations with both a mother and her daughter or granddaughter, marrying two sisters, sleeping with a woman while she is in an impure menstrual state, committing adultery, giving one seed to the molech, and engaging in either homosexuality or bestiality. It's difficult to find a common denominator between all these prohibitions. In contrast to the first unit that we looked at in the last year, in none of these acts is the act prohibited because the prohibited party is considered the man or his relative's flesh or nakedness. Instead, the verses emphasize how each of the acts are somehow abhorrent Having relations with a mother and daughter is considered wickedness. Adultery defiles. Homosexuality is an abomination. And bestiality is a perversion. Interestingly, of all the prohibitions in this second unit, the only one which is not given a derogatory label is marrying two sisters. Apparently, this act is not in and of itself considered problematic, and after all, is permitted after the death of one's spouse. It's prohibited only because of the ill will it will cause between the sisters. This might explain why Yaakov had no qualms about marrying both Rachel and Leah, two sisters. Though one might excuse his behavior by simply positing that the Avot, living centuries before Matan Torah, were not obligated to keep the mitzvot, one would still hope that they would have not engaged in behavior that the Torah leader refers to as an abomination or the like. Marrying sisters, though, is apparently not viewed in such a light. In fact, 
One could go even further and suggest that the entire prohibition came only in the aftermath of Yaakov's marriage, which was living proof of the potential strife inherent in such a situation. Let's now explore the reasons for the prohibitions as a whole. In discussing the issue, some commentators attempt to find a common explanation for all, while others differentiate between the various offenses. In his philosophical work, The Moran Nevuchim, the Rambam offers the following explanation. I'm going to read in translation. The law about forbidden sexual intercourse seeks in all its parts to inculcate the lesson that we ought to limit sexual intercourse altogether, hold it in contempt, and only desire it very rarely. The female relatives whom a man may not marry are alike in this respect. They are, as a rule, constantly together with him in his house. For as a rule, the mother of the wife, the grandmother, the daughter, the granddaughter, and the sister-in-law are mostly with her. The husband meets them always when he goes out, when he comes in, and when he's at his work. These are all the relatives which we must not marry. This is one of the reasons why intermarriage with a near relative is forbidden. According to Rambam, the laws come to limit sexual intercourse. The women who are off limits are chosen since they are the ones that are most likely for the man to come into contact with being related and therefore ever present in his house. Even as a writes similarly, Since man's inclination or desires is like the animals, it was impossible to prohibit all females, and therefore Hashem prohibited all that are found with him all the time. The Rambam explains the prohibition against bestiality and homosexuality in the same vein, telling us, if in the natural way the act is too base to be performed except when needed, how much more base it is if performed in an unnatural manner and only for the sake of pleasure. For the Rambam then, sexual acts as a whole need to be limited, as they are in his words, a base act. One should engage in sex only rarely and for a purpose. As such, Acts which are done in an unnatural way, which cannot result in procreation, and thus are clearly solely for pleasure, should be avoided altogether. Though he does not say so, one could apply his, re his reasoning to the case of a menstruating woman as well. At that time of month, intercourse will not lead to procreation, and so there is no utility in the deed. Ramban disagrees, taking the Rambam to task for his position. He argues, and again I'm going to read in translation, this is a very weak reason for the Torah to sentence one to karate, that one should be cut off from one's nation, only because they are sometimes with him. While the Torah simultaneously permits one to marry many wives, even hundreds or thousands. What would be the harm in marrying only one's daughter, as is permitted to the sons of Noah, or marrying two sisters, as Yaakov our forefather did? There's no more appropriate marriage than for a man to marry off his daughter to his older son, such that it will inherit from him and will be fruitful and multiply in his house. For, quote, he did not create the earth a wasteland, he formed it to be inhabited. We have no tradition in this regard, but that it is one of the secrets of creation. Ramban points out that considering that the Torah allows polygamy and does not set a limit on how many wives one is allowed to take, it's somewhat difficult to say that the Torah is trying to limit sexual intercourse by setting relatives off limits. Moreover, he suggests that there would seem to be no inherent harm, for instance, and two siblings marrying. After all, they can then together inherit from their father, continue to grow and proliferate in his home. 
This leads Ramban to conclude that the prohibitions against having relations with those who are of one's flesh are among the sodot, or secrets, of creation. And that as a whole, ha'arayot mechlal ha'chukim, dvarim shehem gzerat melech. Sexual actions should be understood as chukim, decrees of Hashem. It should be noted, though, that despite this argument, Ramban is actually not so far from the Rambam in his evaluation of the sexual act. He too writes that sexual relations is davar meruchak hamin, understanding that sex which is not for the purposes of procreation is considered an abhorrent act by the Torah. One might question whether their evaluation actually stems from Torah or not. For a simple reading of Torah, it does not necessarily suggest that it looks down upon permitted sexual acts. As Ramban himself pointed out, polygamy is not a Torah violation, nor is there a limit to how often a man might have relations with his wife. In contrast to certain other religions, Judaism does not laud celibacy. It has no problem with its priests marrying. The very fact that a book like Shira Shirim is part of our Karen would seem sufficient evidence that Judaism does not look down upon all sexuality. This leads both Ibn Kaspi and Shadal to a very different understanding of the prohibition. Ibn Kaspi writes that the purpose of the laws is to keep peace between us, to remove quarrels and strife. Shadal similarly writes that they are kulam l'to'ela either for the utility of society as a whole or for the smaller family unit. Thus, Shadal suggests that the societal reasons for prohibiting adultery is obvious. It will prevalent jealousy, fighting, and even vengeful killings. On the other hand, the prohibitions against having relations with those who are of one's flesh, who are related either through blood or marriage, come They have to preserve family structure to ensure love and respect within the unit. Relations with a mother or aunt show contempt for the concept of kibbut harim. Similarly, marrying both a woman and her daughter would serve to equalize the two, blurring lines between parent and child and again leading to an erosion of parental honor. In addition, marrying two sisters or one sister-in-law would cause jealousy and strife within the family, and so they too are prohibited. Finally, bestiality and homosexuality are prohibited because they go against nature and are harmful to the natural family unit. As marrying one sister would not seem to present any of the above problems, Shadah provides a distinct reason for the Torah's prohibiting of such a union, suggesting that it is not lahat but rather, not for the success of the house, but for the success of the state. He says that if marrying a sister were allowed, it would be so prevalent that every family would become like a nation of its own. Families would not marry and mix with each other, creating fewer interfamilial ties and less unity within the nation as a whole. So we see two very different perspectives on the laws governing sexual unions one which views sexuality as a whole in a negative light, and the prohibitions as being a means to limit such relations, and one which does not view the act negatively, but rather sees certain specific relationships as being detrimental to the family unit or to the society as a whole. With this, let's move to the chapter's conclusion. We'll see that in several aspects, it echoes the introduction, and that low less poetic in style, it too is replete with repetitions, parallelisms, and has a somewhat tight structure. Pasuk Chavdalid Al titam'u b'chol e'la, ki v'chol e'la nitm'u ha'goyim asher ani m'shaleach m'pneichem. V'titma ha'aret be'efkod avona aleha, 
Hashem tells the nation not to defile themselves through these sexual acts, for the nations which Hashem is to rid from the land had been so defiled. Not only that, as a result of their actions, the land itself was defiled and vomited out its inhabitants. The verses introduce an interesting concept, that somehow a person's actions affects not just them, but the land upon which they live. We'll see the idea repeat itself in the next few verses, and we'll discuss its significance shortly. Hashem continues to warn the nation not to follow in the path of the Canaanites, but rather, You shall therefore keep my statutes and my ordinances, and not do any of these abominations, neither the native-born nor the stranger who lives as a foreigner among you. As we saw in the chapter's introduction, Hashem tells the nation both, don't do evil, don't engage in the abominable sexual acts like those committed by the Canaanites, but also, do instead good, keep Hashem's ordinances. And then Hashem repeats, For all these abominations were done by the men who were in the land before you, and the land became defiled. Let the land not vomit you out also when you defile it, as it vomited out the nation that was before you. As we saw in verse 25, here too Hashem draws a connection between defiling oneself and defiling the land. Because anyone who commits such abominations will be cut off from the nation. And finally, the chapter concludes by reiterating yet again, Keep my requirements that you do not practice any of these abominable customs which were practiced before you, that you do not defile yourselves with them. And the chapter ends as it began with Hashem announcing, Ani Hashem Elokechem, I am Hashem, your God. From even a quick read of the above verses, the repetition in the unit is obvious. We are told twice not to act in the manner of the nations and twice to instead observe Hashem's mitzvot. The concept that sexual acts defile repeats six times, three times in reference to the defiling of man in verses 24 and 30, which sandwich the unit, and three times in reference to the defiling of the land in verses 25, 27, and 28 in the body of the unit. The prohibited sexual acts are labeled abominations four times, and the idea that the land will vomit up its inhabitants comes up three times. All the repetition sends a clear message regarding the Torah's evaluation of the abhorrence of the prohibited sexual acts and the severity of the offenses. They also clearly express that engaging in such behavior is deleterious not only to the individual, but also to the land in which he lives. Both are defiled by such acts. And moreover, the land can't bear such abominations. As Rav Davitzvi Hoffman writes, just as a person who eats rotten food must purge it from his system, so too the land must purge rotten inhabitants from its midst. Rav Hirsch expounds at length about this connection between the state of the land and the deeds of its inhabitants. He points out how the concept that the Torah intertwined is made throughout Tanakh. Already, already in Breshi chapter 3, when Adam sins by eating from the tree of knowledge, not only is he cursed, but so is the land. Hashem tells Adam 
כי שמעת לכל אשתך, ותאכל מן העת אשר ציוויתיך לאמור לא תאכל ממנו, עבורה האדמה בעבורך. Because you listened to your wife and ate from the tree which I commanded you not to eat, the land will be cursed before you. When Cain kills Hevel, his blood cries out from the earth, and Cain is told, Once again, it is not only Cain who is punished, but the land too is cursed. By the story of the flood, we similarly read, Because of the corruption of the people, the land itself became corrupt. Hashem proceeds to punish not just mankind, but the world itself, in effect undoing creation, to start afresh. Later in Tanakh, in Nevi'im and Ketuvim, we see the same motif. Yeshayahu tells us that when the people sin, the land mourns, avla navla ha'aret. And conversely, when justice is done, it rejoices, as Tehillim tells us, yismachu ha'shamayim v'tagel ha'aret. Many verses talk about the sins, someone's sins effect on the land of Israel specifically. In Vayikra 19, we read how prostitution causes the land to prostitute. Bimidbar 24 states that murder pollutes the land, and the land itself cannot be cleansed except through the blood of the murderer. Some suggest that this is the reason that an inadvertent murderer must run to a city of refuge. Since the man killed only unintentionally, he does not deserve death. But nonetheless, because of his deed, the land cannot bear to house him, and so he must leave his regular inheritance and move to the no-man's land of the Levites. It seems that Israel, more than any other land, cannot bear the corruption of its inhabitants. Rav Hurst suggests that it contains inherent holiness. Just as Israel is the chosen people, it is the chosen land, with the task of housing those who keep Hashem's Torah. And so when they transgress that Torah, especially through heinous crimes such as murder or gilui, or gilui arayot, the land can no longer sustain them and must spit them out. This, of course, is the history of Am Yisrael. With sin and corruption comes exile. Though the verses in Rav Hirsch focus on some type of metaphysical spread of sin to the land of the sinners, I want to end with a lesson that can be learned from the concept on the non-metaphysical level as well. People often underestimate the impact of their deeds on the world around them. We interact with one person and sometimes assume that they are the only one affected, either for good or for bad. The Torah tells us no, your actions are much more far-reaching. They can affect the entire fabric of society. In Yertar Shem, our next year will open Parashat Kedoshim and introduce the concept of Kedushah. What does it mean to be holy?